Water Values podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. And by Xylem, let's solve water. This is session 190. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Well, hello, and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey, and thank you so much for joining me. Our guest today is longtime water lawyer Scott Slater, who fills us in on a number of angles about his Cadiz water project. Now, it's a lengthy interview, but it was so good and chock full of information that I decided to release it in its entirety. So you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, Scott does a, an amazing job walking us through all the different angles and uh, how a project comes together. And uh, But first, and as always, thank you very much to our sponsors, Black & Veatch, the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, Intera, and Xylem. Thank you so much. I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would, please, if you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact to that sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the water industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. Well, now it's on to our featured guest, Scott Slater. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Scott, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. How are you doing today? You bet. It's great to have you on. Uh, for those who don't know much about you, Scott, can you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Right. Well, uh, I think uh, my my history was probably a little different than most. My father actually worked for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and my mother lived on a working farm in eastern Los Angeles County before the urban expansion uh, during the baby boom post-World War II. So we used to have some very interesting conversations about water uh, at our dinner table, and that experience stuck with me through life. While in college, I think I had a pretty unusual double major of geology and political philosophy, and that ultimately led me to a project that I did, which combined water law and hydrogeology into a, a term paper, and, and from then, really, the game was on. Uh, <laughs> I, I spent time at the United States Department of Justice working on some federal cases uh, involving water, pretty important. And then for 36 years, I was in private practice focusing exclusively on water law. And the interest really uh, in the actual practice was complimented because I ended up teaching in law schools and graduate schools in the U.S., Australia, and China. And then I published a leading treatise in California called California Water Law and Policy. And I think in the end, what brought me to water is really the human aspect of it. When you see your grandfather standing over a ditch and his hands shaking because there's no water in the ditch, you under, understand uh, what's at risk. And intellectually, I suppose, what continues to draw me to it is there's probably no bigger puzzle in the world than, than water problems. And I think that's uh, from an intellectual uh, standpoint. My history is in doing hard things on big stages. And the, the problem of solving puzzles which are unique to every situation uh, is, uh, is really a challenge. And I've been rewarded by having a long career that is, uh, I think, meant a lot to me and the people I've worked for. Terrific. Well, what, what kind of puzzle are you working on now? Well, in, in, uh, in 2000, actually December of 2008, 
I decided to, to take on the responsibility of revisioning a, a project that had been discussed and considered between 1998 and 2002 called the Cadiz Project. And the Cadiz Project is owned and operated by a, a public company which is called Cadiz, it's traded on the NASDAQ, and they had a, a really prolific and unique in their combination set of assets, uh, which was the, a land holding of about 35,000 contiguous acres and overlying between 20 and 40 million acre feet of water, which had largely been untapped. So uh, my effort really was to take a look at this project that had been considered and actually permitted once by the United States Bureau of Land Management, but uh, ultimately did not move forward uh, because the public-private partner in that case, the, the Metropolitan Water District, decided not to, to uh, take up the mantle and move. And that was really driven by environmental concerns over whether the project uh, would cause harm to the surrounding environment. So I decided in 2008, looking at the long-term projected systemic shortages in the West and in particular California, and, and thought that there ought to be a better way to um, use these assets productively without harm to the environment. And we really did a 360 evaluation of what the environmental concerns had been that led to the project not going forward in 98 to 2002. And we decided to see if we could redress it. Um, the project uh, and its access to water is important and significant. It's not going to solve California's problems in and of itself. It, it could make a sizable dent. And I think if, if one were to evaluate it uh, uh, objectively, uh, it is, it's a tremendous uh, opportunity for California to be innovative and to uh, combine facets of supply development, storage and conveyance, and to do so uh, in an environmentally benign way. Uh, for a point of reference, perhaps, I think maybe your listeners could go to Google Earth and they, they typed in Cadiz and Bristol Dry Lakes. They would or could pull up some photographs uh, of what really looks like the surface of the moon. Um, you'll note that there isn't anything green or uh, any flora, fauna, any kind on those dry lakes. And Cadiz is, is uh, located to the north uh, east of there by about 12 miles from those dry lakes. And those are really massive, uh, massive lakes. And when, when we say dry lakes, you have to understand that the, they're not wet on the surface, uh, but yet they emit vast quantities of water to uh, evaporation every year. In fact, they lose or surrender about 9 billion gallons of water a year uh, to the atmosphere. And when we began to think about the amount of water that was being pulled up or wicked through the ground surface, we started to think about what I would call a interception and rescue program. And if you, if you can imagine a watershed that is somewhere around 1,400 square miles. That's roughly equivalent to the state of Rhode Island. And with snowpack and precipitation at the upper end of that aquifer system, the, the water is always moving, as we know, and it is going from the highest end of the watershed, which is 7,500 feet above sea level, and flows downhill to Cadiz, where it hits a, uh, a contraction or a restriction in the groundwater flow to about two and a half to three miles. And we own all the property in that location. And then from there, the water continues a slow millennial march to those dry lakes where it evaporates. So in theory, what we, or our hypothesis was that we would intercept the water on the way down the hill and capture it for beneficial use, conserving it, if you will, instead of allowing it to continue on its pathway to those dry lakes where it's evaporated. 
And I think if you, if your listeners are imagining this in their mind's eye, or they're able to, to get to Google Earth, you'll see these uh, strip mines that are out there. In fact, a couple of California's largest strip mines exist out on these dry lakes where they peel away the ground surface, and you'll see sort of a uh, Mediterranean blue uh, in these ditches, and in fact, that's water in these ditches that is laterally filled simply by removing the surface, exposing the water that is as low as four feet beneath the ground surface. So our intention with this project was to intercept the water on the way down the hill and rescue it, if you will, by conservation. And it's not an immaterial uh, quantity of water, really. It's enough water to supply about 400,000 people a year. So David, that's the, that's the project um, that we've been working on. And, and we're very excited about uh, its prospects. And uh, I think what we, what we did was uh, instructive. And in fact, in my experience, I think it's the, I think it's the most reviewed water project uh, that I'm aware of, and I've been around a lot. We, we went through a, a expansive peer review process with people that were called from around the world to view it and to, to give us feedback about whether or not it, it made sense. Uh, and, and then from there, we went through an open public review, environmental review process. Thousands of people comment on, on the project. And, and in the end, an environmental clearance was was uh, achieved, finding that there were zero, zero adverse environmental impacts associated with the project operation. We had our local host county uh, approve the project and the extraction of groundwater, largely because, it, again, it was an interception of evaporated water. Nobody was being deprived of water. No species relied upon groundwater uh, for, for use. And then those decisions were uh, validated in six superior court cases, which is the lowest level in California, and then again on the appeal. So uh, we were pretty excited and well on our road to being able to implement it. And, uh, and then we, we've continued, however, to receive opposition to the project, which is unfortunate, but we continue to try to address concerns and, and, uh, and perfect uh, to the end. Great. Well, it's it certainly sounds like a long journey, you know, from from December 2008 to present. So it's been 12 years plus. Uh, I, I have a couple questions on on the sure. on the history of this. So you said that Metropolitan initially back in the 1998 to 2002 time frame declined to uh, sign a, a, a deal with Cadiz based on environmental impact. Uh, how did you? And then you had your most recent environmental uh, review finding zero impact. So what, what what happened in between? What were what were how did how were the environmental issues mitigated or addressed to achieve that that zero impact uh, designation? Yeah, that's a great question. So back in in ninety eight to two thousand and two, you have to consider the world's landscape, the regulatory landscape, and project landscape, and what we were doing. In 98, most of the storage facilities, surface storage facilities uh, in California were under siege in, in, uh, in California and in the West, the, the, the pressure being to pull down dams, which has continued relentlessly until today. And there, there was an emerging thought uh, in what people call aquifer, aquifer storage and recovery or using uh, the groundwater aquifer as a substitute for expanded surface water facilities. And at the time, there were three separate projects that were being considered. One was the Semi-Tropic Water Storage District, which is now up and functional, um, proposing to store about a million one acre feet. There was the Kern County Water Bank of comparable size, also in Kern County. And then there was Cadiz. And the difference between Cadiz and those other two banks which went forward is that those banks were being proposed in an area where there had already been substantial groundwater extraction and uh, activity on the surface. And then when it came to, uh, by comparison to Cadiz, 
you are talking about really a donut hole within federally protected land. So even though we have this rather wide holding, um, expansive holding, there, there really wasn't any historical water use. So the environmental record was largely based upon the information that could be obtained, which was relatively scant in comparison to those other areas. There was a lot of modeling. And the project was initially approved by the federal government on the basis of a monitoring plan. And, and a lot of the concerns then developed in the environmental uh, community about the adequacy of the monitoring to correct for a problem um, after it already happened. So you might, you might get a warning, but in, ostensibly the, the concern was that you'd know too late and that there wasn't sufficient information developed um, largely to address uh, what I would call a, a quartet of concerns. And in principle, so, so those things became the reason to say that the project had been approved largely on the basis of an expansive monitoring and mitigation plan. And, and that was a difficult sell uh, to Metropolitan at, at that time. So fast forward to 2008, there is a quantum leap that occurs in the availability of data uh, that, that had been developed going back to the Clinton administration where there had been a west-wide mapping, um, the uh, development of things like Google Earth, uh, the PRISM project, which estimated, uh, was a, which created an ability to estimate precipitation on a, on a granular basis in places where we didn't have it before. And then just the overall advances, uh, which were pretty dramatic. I and mean, when you think about 1998, we, we really didn't have smartphones, right? I mean, the world lurched forward in its, in its knowledge base. So we looked at principally four things, which had been the, the origin of uh, the concerns and the principal one uh, was really fascinating. So you look at those dry lakes and the, and the first one was is that we were gonna create a dust bowl. So if you, if you think about us under a, a project where we were going to intercept the water before it could get to those dry lakes, what would be the impact on on those dry lakes and would we create fugitive dust? Um, and we invested heavily in trying to understand that because that would have been an absolute barrier to us moving forward and we needed to know whether our project hypothesis worked or not. So um, we evaluated that and one of the things we learned is by comparison say to one of the larger dust uh, problems at the Owen Valley um, is that our our playa or these dry lakes is groundwater fed. It, it was never a surface water fed body. And so there's no reliction associated with exposing a lake bottom. Instead, what has happened is that the over millions of years, the, the evaporation process pulls up the water, leaves behind the minerals as evidenced by the hyper saline character of the soil and the salt mining. But uh, the most important simple answer to the dust problem was is the lake's primary constituents is calcium chloride. And it actually binds when it's dewatered. Uh, we, we, so in short, we learned that dust would never be a problem of the project. Land subsidence was a concern. Uh, we investigated this. We had uh, comments by the railroads, the pipeline companies, and everybody interested in whether or not we were going to pull water down, compress soil, and thereby create subsidence. And the answer to that is there isn't really any risk there. It's not subject to silts and clays. Uh, so we did a separate investigation into that. And of course, um, it never becomes a problem if you're not dewatering a significant portion of, uh, of the aquifer system. And if you lift, uh, limit yourself to what's sustainable, that's also sort of the belt and suspenders. Uh, in short, uh, we looked at uh, water quality degradation, concluded that there was nothing there. And then the last issue, uh, which continues to be a subject of discussion is that 
uh, we are, as I said, the donut hole in a vast uh, federal protected area, approximately 11 miles away and, and uh, around 1,400 feet up in elevation. So valley floor, 1,400 feet up. There is something called the Bonanza Spring. And the concern was that our pumping at the valley floor could have an impact up at that spring. So we went through substantial uh, pump testing. We, we did geophysical work or reviewed geophysical work. We did mapping uh, of faults. And we looked at, uh, at whether there was any risk associated with that. And you might intuitively might say, well, if you pull out the plug in a bathtub, it doesn't affect the shower. And indeed, water doesn't run uphill. And so the question was from an intuitive standpoint, and well, how could that ever happen? And, and indeed, it would be remote. Uh, but we did make the investment in that, and we've concluded, uh, I think, that there's no possibility that pumping down on the valley floor has an impact on the springs. Uh, but we cannot, we cannot turn our head and not listen to the fact that people have concerns. And so we have continued to press on to gather more information and to conclude beyond any reasonable doubt that our pumping could not um, uh, impact those springs, which we, we deal, uh, deem to be a very important commitment by our project to be environmentally benign. So that's a, that's a broad brush. We looked at what those issues were. We used scientific method to address them all and then designed a project within parameters that we could confidently say would not cause harm to any one of those impacts. And we really benefited, the last point would be, is we really benefited by the host county, San Bernardino County, in imposing permit conditions on the project that basically said, we're going to limit drawdown in the epicenter of the well field over the life of the project to 80 feet. And so as you're thinking about that, 80 feet in the epicenter of a well field means that you're talking about two or three feet at the edge of our property and de minimis or non-existent as you move out from, from that well field. So if you're not going to change the, the water table significantly, you're curtailing the amount of water you would take, you're just not going to have an impact, even though the studies also show we wouldn't and under circumstances where the recharge was zero. Sure. That's a, that's a, uh, a great summary of, of the uh, environmental issues. So what are folks fighting about now? I mean, is it, is, are they still arguing the environmental side? Is that, and I don't want to, I know if there's pending litigation, you may not want to get into it, but, but. No, no, look, uh, I think that's a great question. And, and the, the, from, um, from the perspective of, who we are and what we're doing, the, the legacy of a water project and its ability uh, to move forward isn't won or lost at the approval stage. It, the people have to have confidence that what you're doing is open, transparent, and, and the right thing. Otherwise, you sort of suffer the experience the city of Los Angeles has undergone for the last you know, 70 years as they or more as they tried to take water out of the Owens Valley. It's one thing to get going. It's another thing to keep going. So from, um, from a legal standpoint, yes, the courts have validated everything that has been done um, 100% without limitation. So we feel good about that and, and the independence of that review. But there's a tension that exists in, in California and to some degree uh, in the West. And the tension really emanates from a, uh, a concern about more water being added to the grid and then the consequence of that water and what's done with it. And so I think as, uh, as most people are aware, there's a, a pretty strong opposition uh, to water projects generally, and there's an underlying thesis which has been pretty well documented and and if you go to websites of some groups they they are very direct about that their intention is to deny infrastructure uh specifically water uh, for for um 
to inhibit or impair new development in housing. And the idea is that suburbia in the ex urban expansion is a bad thing, and we should stop um, water from being provided in those areas. And then that also translates or conflates with people who are genuinely concerned about the resource being taken in place. And both of those things combined have led to uh, a continued questioning uh, administratively and politically about whether the this project is safe to go forward. So uh, we have heard and, in, and information continues to be uh, cited to say that, that in particular that the, the project will harm these springs. So that is uh, those springs and the concern over the health of those springs became the impetus for the passage of a, a bill in California, which is the first and only um, of its kind, which identified a specific water project and said, even though you went through an environmental review process and found no harm, even though the county went through its process and permitted the project and found no harm, and even though courts at the trial court and appellate court level found no harm, that the state of California wants to take an independent look. And, and again, the, the forces really are genuine concern over the spring. And then what I would say is a water policy fight about where water is going. And, and then the implications become uh, exponentially greater when you think about the role of water and economic development fair share of housing, it becomes a larger geopolitical issue than, than you would imagine uh, being associated with a single project. Yeah, yeah. So let's take the latter of those concerns, right? Where the water's going. Uh, I, I guess my initial question is because you've described the donut hole and you've said, you know, if you look at, at the map or you look at Google Earth, it's you're going to see these dry lakes and there's really nothing nothing around it. So how do you get the water out of there? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty simple. I, I'm I'm fond of saying, and, and, and you'll hear me say it a lot, is uh, they're, they're the, the most original ideas um, that we had at this project are taking other people's great ideas that worked in other places and combining them here. So as we, we can start with the dry lakes and say we know that uh, based upon sensors, uh, we know about actual data, actual measurements about how much water is, is coming off of those dry lakes. And we know what's left behind. We know that we have hypersaline soil. We know we have hypersaline water, 10 times saltier than the ocean. And as you think about that, the reason for that is a simple act of evaporating the water leaves behind the salt and the minerals, and it becomes this continuing concentration of water, which does not or is not suitable for any um, specific use. And and yet you move up grading in the watershed where Cadiz is presently farming, and you see that our our uh, TDS levels are between 250 and 300 uh, parts, and that's a pretty good quality of water. That's uh, about half of what the TDS is in Colorado River supply. So it's pretty fresh. And, and uh, what's going on is, is as the water is following gravity downhill and getting to those dry lakes, it's becoming increasingly saline and, and mineralized. And so the, the point of our project is we want to put down a series of wells operating ostensibly like a picket fence and so as the water comes downhill, marching towards those dry lakes, just using natural head to push it in that direction, the wells go in and take what nature is sending downhill. In other words, what goes in comes out. So if we're able to calibrate the wells and locate them in the, in the right locations, they can capture what nature feeds through the migration. It can then be... Um, put into a pipeline that we propose to construct in an active railway right-of-way to minimize impact, and then send it about 43 miles to empty space in the Colorado River aqueduct, 
and then from there, utilizing that existing facility, make it available to 20 million plus people in Southern California uh, under contracts with uh, public water suppliers. So Cadiz wouldn't be entering the service part of this. It's a wholesale water supply developer to generate that, that water uh, on an annual basis for Southern California. And really, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, and, the, and the water table is managed to create, if you will, a, a, a barrier to the continued outflow and evaporation of that, of that water. And as you're thinking about it in context, you have to remember that this is a massive groundwater aquifer with, with more than 20 million acre feet in it. And, and the consequence, the physical consequence of removing water 2.5 million acre feet over this extended period is really nominal. You're just taking uh, a inconsequential uh, quantity, really. And, and even today, uh, what, what's great to see is, is further validation of this is we are, we've been farming for decades and continued uh, with citrus and, and vegetables, dried on the vine, raisins, and now hemp. And our water table today is as high as it's ever been. Uh, so we're pretty confident in our data. We're pretty confident in, this, in the, uh, the histori historical support for this. So pretty simple. We take what, what comes in before it can become hypersaline and evaporate. Got it. So uh, what about the infrastructure you're using? Are you, are you able to, um, you, you know, maximize or optimize the use of existing infrastructure? Uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the Colorado River Aqueduct. Are there other infrastructure elements that you're, you're using uh, highly efficiently? Well, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, go back to you're a dad. And, and I would say, so when I started this, my, my three kids were, or my two kids, sorry, were interested in, in Jack Johnson and three is the magic number, reduce, reuse, recycle. So uh, they used to be dad around the head regularly about how are you doing that at the project? And, and we really did try to adhere to those things. So you have, I'm just, you know, sort of build the layering here for you. So the wells we put in, have duality in them. They can be used for our, our uh, farming operation. They can be used to export and, and solve for this conservation problem that uh, I was describing. So they can be used for export or they can use, be used for overlying farming. The, the right-of-way that connects us to the Colorado River Aqueduct is an existing right-of-way and there is, we're not uh, moving over uh, open public land. We are going within an existing right-of-way with the intention of avoiding uh, the, the any kind of impact that would be associated with that. And then we also would use the existing Colorado River Aqueduct and space within that. So the, the new uh, the footprint is really nominal for, for trying to move in that direction. And then the second thing that that uh, we've made some filings on at the end of the year, and, and people are understand trying to to appreciate what we're uh, what we're up to is going back to that that basic paradigm of of trying to solve a portion or helping California to solve its systemic uh, water shortage problems. Part of its supply, part of its storage, which I can get to, but. A real part of it is conveyance, and and we began to look at the prospect of sort of an analog to putting our pipeline in the railway right away. We began to look at whether there were available assets in California that we might be able to acquire and repurpose, and we ultimately landed on a 220-mile pipeline that was owned by El Paso Natural Gas, which starts up in Kern County, Wheeler Ridge, and then runs uh, southeasterly 
uh, into the Antelope Valley, into the community of Barstow, and then has its endpoint down at Cadiz. And so as we, we looked at this, not every uh, natural gas or oil pipeline is going to be suitable. They tend to be smaller in diameter. And while there are some pretty interesting prospects that we've seen over time, this one is a 30-inch line. And from an engineering standpoint, and engineers out there will know that we, we grade pipelines or the steel uh, and pressure component is, is a lot greater for uh, moving petroleum products than, than water. And this means that you can pressurize a line. And so at 30 inches, uh, you, you have the ability to convey water along that path. And so what we had thought that we, we could do is once again, uh, a, quite, a, quite separate from the water project itself, although there may be a, a benefit at some point to tying into it and in, in bringing water down into a, a bank at, at Cadiz, the, the basic notion is that we can connect people uh, and put willing buyers and willing sellers together or assist water districts that are looking at trying to expand their pipeline portfolio and offer them sort of a toll road approach to putting water into a, to a repurposed natural gas pipeline. And so we're very excited about it. It's the first of its kind. We think it's the first in the United States in which this has been done. And it's an innovative approach to uh, avoiding new construction by following the, the pathway of an existing pipeline through an existing right-of-way. And we're very excited to be putting together buyers and sellers. Uh, and and uh, a, as we know, water is plentiful in some places and needed elsewhere. And it's a big deal to try to get it from one place to the, to the next. And you don't have to look further than the San Joaquin, San Francisco Bay Delta problems and the difficulty they've had in California trying to remedy that problem um, over the last four years. Yeah, that's repurposing the pipeline sounds like a very advantageous, uh, both economically and environmentally uh, prospect. Uh, are, are, what are the, can you give a thumbnail of kind of what are the kind of the issues to, that you need to consider when converting a pipeline that, that used to carry natural gas to carrying water? I mean, are there, how do you, how do you just go about the conversion process? Well, I, you know, as, as we've looked at it, uh, obviously we went through a due diligence period uh, with our own engineers and water quality professionals. <clears throat> the act of actually converting it uh, requires some level of appreciation on, on, you know, pump lifts, how are you going to move it and, and how are you going to pressurize it and make sure that the, the specifications uh, of what the historical pattern is comport with what you want to do. So that's not really related to the, the, the actual structure itself, I think, uh, but, it, but it's an important component. The, the question of whether you need to line it or not and if so, um, how you would how you would go about that, or how you would uh, use a substitute for that. And I think um, the predicate to, to all of that is being confident that the historical operation of the pipeline is such that you can clean it um, to a level where you can confidently deliver water, which meets uh, ideally potable standards. Although you can see the application for non-potable uses. Uh, clearly, you could you could see that, but from from our standpoint, we wanted to know that we could run uh, water through the pipe at uh, at standards that would meet every MCL, and based upon the tests that we've conducted, we know we can do that. So I would say just the configuration is is can you operate the pipeline for water, which is heavy, much heavier than natural gas. So from a pressure in the pipeline standpoint, it's not a problem, but you may need to look at uh, differentials and pump stations and how you move it about. And then the second is, 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 it a line, is, it, is it a pipeline that can be cleaned or is it a pipeline that needs to be lined? And, and those elements um, are significant in terms of the long-term cost of operation. You have to remember, I mean, I think you think about in, in the world that we live today, how difficult it is to permit 
a 220-mile pipeline. It's a pretty Herculean effort uh, from the permitting side, the expense side. There's no way that's done for less than 200 million. Um, some people think 400 million. So if you're able to grab onto an asset and repurpose for a fraction of that, it it's it's good for the public. Uh, it's it's good for all of us in following a pathway. Um, which opens up these rights of way, which are already disturbed, and these and finds a, a, a new purpose for for something that that um, maybe people aren't so excited about natural gas pipelines running through their neighborhood anymore. And near as I can tell, everybody, no one's ever been killed from a from a water supply or a water pipeline blowout. <laughs> All right. So uh, as we get. As we get towards the end here, could you talk a little about what you said early on that the water from the Cadiz project could supply an additional 400,000 Californians? Could you just kind of put that in perspective in terms of how is that going to impact, you know, the the equitable distribution of water in California, so to speak? You know, what what Yeah, I look I, I think there's a there's a there's we've done sort of a a, a bad a, a bad job in how we speak about uh, conservation and juxtapose that against uh, against rationing, and and they're really um, they're really different things, and it has to do and the impacts on our on our working class families and our disadvantaged communities, actually, and the impact on everybody is is probably um, misunderstood. And so I want to I want to go to a what I call the conservation conundrum and explain why water augmentation is important in that context and, and why Cadiz is, is part of that solution. So we start from the, with the basic proposition that most, if not all water utilities are, are in the business of uh, building service improvements. They have a, a pretty significant infrastructure that's required to, to meet a delivery and there are fixed costs that are associated with doing that. And while we have a social duty or an ethic that, that um, is required of us really to use water efficiently and to conserve and not be wasteful, um, that's a, a quite, uh, quite a bit different because that can be actually understood and planned for in your baseline. When we talk about irregularity or variability in the supply, which which is not planned for or is just understood and communities make a decision not to make investments in water augmentation, what happens is when there is a drought, and ever more frequently we see this happening in the West, when there's a drought, people are uh, told if there's not adequate supply, they're told to ration. And that phenomena is what I call the, the conservation conundrum because you go to your ratepayers, many of whom are working class families and disadvantaged communities, and you tell them, please use less water. And they do. They are compliant. They do the right thing. And they conserve by 20% or 30% or whatever the number is. And as, and as the, uh, that happens, they find their water rates are doubling or tripling or spiking because very simply, if you're selling less water, you have less revenue to use to offset your fixed costs. And the entity has no choice but to increase those rates. And, and in reality, it doesn't have to be that way. We can be efficient. We can be conservation-minded. We can respect the value of water and yet plan for having a reliable supply that will cover us in drought. And by spending the money on a proportionate basis to bring in that new supply, we would actually avoid the rate spike and deliver water to people. So on a relative basis, it's sort of, if you spend the buck on a monthly basis in your water rate to go get the additional water to protect you in the drought, you avoid the $4 increase in those periods of shortage. Not to mention the lost opportunity that's associated with not having a reliable supply 
And, and as we were talking earlier, the barrier to building housing, which many disadvantaged and uh, uh, working class families really want, the, the barrier to getting that housing is having a reliable water supply. So the, the, it is really um, a, a double win to these communities. You're, you're not getting your fair share of housing, uh, affordable housing, an opportunity for that, and you are paying dramatically for your good behavior as uh, by doing the right thing and, and using less when you're told to use less. And I just don't think that a lot of people, I, I know my mother when she was alive used to go crazy because she would be using a fraction of the amount and her bill would be uh, going up and going up and not understanding how that could possibly happen. So a project like Cadiz, which can provide long-term reliable supply as a cover for drought, uh, is is an option to these communities to make investments in water augmentation for those communities who want it to avoid those problems to enable economic development in their community and enable them to provide a fair share of housing so we're we're not the only uh, water augmentation project that's out there but we're certainly one of the 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 most affordable if not the most affordable and uh, we have a great advantage of being at the headwaters, really, of the Colorado River Aqueduct. So we can be dropped into the aqueduct and distributed to um, communities that want the water within the, the larger uh, six counties of Southern California. Great. Well, that, that's just a terrific perspective that you, you provided there on, on uh, the equitable distribution of water. Uh, Scott, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It, it has been fat. We could talk all day on this stuff. Uh, but but before we say goodbye, could you provide a little kind of what you, what's your leave behind message that you'd like to, you know, have the, the listeners as they walk away from this interview? What what message do you want them to uh, take with them? I, I, I think that uh, the, the world of water uh, as we know it is really um, – really complex, uh, complex in the interlocking character of the, the constituencies that need to be satisfied and supportive of things to move forward. I think that, that it is probably well understood uh, that the priority in the water space has always been safety first. And, and safety is that is job one, and, and it, it's a critical requirement uh, at the same time that adherence to safety first and, and, and always has, has to some degree not uh, encouraged the type of innovation um, that we also need to nurture. It doesn't have to be one at the expense of the other, and we need to be looking for new ways, better ways to safely provide water uh, to all, all of our citizens. And creativity and innovation should be encouraged when it can be safely implemented. We've got to figure out a better way to be more creative, think outside the box, or as I like to say sometimes, accept that there is no box. And, and, and find solutions where we haven't been able to do it, and I think doing things like converting a natural gas pipeline to a water conveyance facility is, is representative of something like that. Yeah. Terrific. Well, again, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. It's been terrific to speak with you today. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you and more about the Cadiz water project, where can they go to get that information? Well, um, they can go to our Cadiz Inc website and, uh, and, we have a, a great face page with just about everything you'd want to know about the water project. And so uh, that's a, the single best source. Terrific. Again, Scott, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. We'll appreciate it. Uh -huh. Bye. So great to have Scott on. What a vast reservoir of knowledge he has. Uh, and it was fascinating to hear about how they solved some of the problems with the Cadiz water project that when it, you know, from its initial incarnation. 
Well, you can check out the show notes for uh, information on uh, this episode and additional links. Just Google the Water Rowdies podcast. Click the first link that comes up. Uh, let also let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can tweet about it using the hashtag water values. You can tweet using my handle at DTM one nine nine three. You can email me at David at Denton's.com and you can sign up for the newsletter, uh, again at the, at the landing page where just Google it, click the first link and there's a box to sign up. We don't spam you. It's just two, uh, emails a month. Uh, once, uh, each time a podcast is released, you can also sign up for the LinkedIn group. Just search the Water Values Podcast and, and you're, you'll find it. Well, thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, the sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2021 season include Black & Veatch, the American Water Works Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, Intera, and Xylem. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders supporting the podcast. So thank you so much. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.